Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money Podcast. I'm Laura Conaway. Today is Wednesday, October 1st, and it's about 5.22 p.m. in New York. The big news today hasn't happened yet. The U.S. Senate plans to vote tonight on its version of the White House bailout bill. It's still $700 billion, but now it's also tax breaks for businesses and certain individuals. Let's just say it's got some sugar now. In just a minute, we're going to hear from a member of Congress who's floating a different bill. He calls it the No Bailouts Act. But first, a question from a listener. Carl Noble is a doctor in the making. He's a med student at the University of Ohio, and he's borrowing his way through school. I've been there, but not quite under these circumstances. Well, I guess my main concern is, like most people in the country, is about how low, how these uh, obviously huge economic problems are going to affect my daily life. And for my number one concern is my student loans, because med school costs a lot of money, and taking out you know, $40,000 a year to finance my education, I just want to know how that's going to affect me as far as interest rates, whether I'm going to have trouble getting loans for my um, second through fourth year of school. For an answer to Carl's question, we turn to Anya Kemenetz. She wrote a book called Generation Debt, and she follows the student loan market really about as closely as anyone. Anya? Over the summer, the talk of a credit crunch started in the student loan market, and lenders started pulling out of the market, both for federal student loans as well as private student loans, which are unsubsidized by the federal government. Uh, So wait, so you mean a place where I used to be able to go and get a student loan was no longer there? That's right, and um, particularly, it's very galling because it happened at uh, you know a lot of community colleges where they suddenly decided that the entire student body was not a good risk anymore, and they they cut off they cut off those types of colleges, and students were finding out you know a month or so before school classes started. It was scary and it was upsetting. Um, it remains a very small proportion of all the lenders that are out there. There's about 111 lenders that have pulled out of the program. That's as of uh, a couple days ago. It's a lot of people. Well, it sounds like a lot, but it's actually a pretty small percentage, particularly on a portfolio basis. So, you know, Sally May is still the behemoth of the student loan industry. Uh, Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase, these large banks are not pulling out of the program. There are very small lenders that have pulled out of the program, and it's a small percentage overall of all loans. So this guy in particular, his loans are with Chase, he says. Right. Uh, Chase and Citibank and Sally May have all announced that they have actually increased their student loan portfolios uh, with this this credit crunch situation in mind. So generally, it's not such a bad situation. Generally, there's not really a credit crunch for, for student loans um, as much as it's been made out to be. You have to recall that the federal government insures these loans to uh, the tune of about 95 cents on the dollar, so the risk for lenders is not that great. What's the safest route to go for student loan borrowing? Well, you know, I've always been a fan, and as you know, uh, of the of the direct loan program uh, because those those funds come directly from the U.S. Treasury, more or less, and uh, so you have a built-in guarantee there. And historically, and increasingly in the future, there are more borrower borrower-friendly provisions within the direct loan program. So, Carl, sounds like Anya Kamenetz, author of Generation Debt, says full speed ahead. Now let's turn to Representative Peter DeFazio. DeFazio has his own idea about how to save the nation's economy. He's a Democrat from Oregon. He's pushing what he calls the No Bailouts Act. DeFazio says he got a lot of his ideas from William Isaac. Isaac ran the FDIC during the 1980s savings and loan crisis. I asked DeFazio about his plan. 
This bill will require FDIC, that's the group that insures bank deposits, to implement a net worth certificate program. Tell me about that. Mr. Isaacs used this very widely. He said for almost 3,000 institutions he kept from going into government receivership uh, or going out of business uh, during the savings and loan crisis. Uh, basically, you send in a team of bank examiners. They look at all the assets of the bank, and they determine whether this bank has any prospects of pulling out. So we uh, still have – it's the same thing. Some people didn't like Treasury Secretary Paulson with the White House bill. They didn't like the idea that, that he alone would essentially get to decide who lived and who died. In this case, we have an agency who would look at banks and exactly. make that – Exactly. Professionals uh, who, who uh, didn't uh, work with the firms that were affected – uh, in a competitive manner as when he was head of Goldman Sachs. I mean, imagine if you were a drinking buddy of uh, Henry Paulson when he becomes God with $700 billion to buy what he wants, whenever he wants, at whatever terms he wants. If you're good friends, you're probably popping champagne corks. If you're someone who made him mad, you're like, oh, man, we are in trouble here. Is this like FDIC insurance for an entire bank? Uh you could say that. It's perhaps a bit more complicated. You might want to get Mr. Isaacs on. He actually can explain these things fairly simply, but they are kind of tough to grasp. It's, I, I, this is about, you know, I've made about 10 runs at this part of it. That's, thank you for making an 11th. Now, <laughs> you say this exchange provides short-term capital without cash outlay. Right, because the bank would be valued uh, higher than its current, uh, you know, its current market value. Uh, but it would have been done professionally. That means they suddenly have a uh, capability of lending. The number one step in your bill is that it would change what's called mark-to-market accounting. That's yes? correct. Can you explain for the average person in the coffee shop mark-to-market? Uh, under current rules, a bank is only allowed to value its assets at what they could sell them for today. Uh, so if they have a, a portfolio of subprime loans uh, and 75% of the people in that portfolio are paying their mortgage every month, uh, they still have to value that as a zero-value asset. Because that's why everyone's saying this stuff is the toxic waste that no one wants to buy. Right. And this is, I think, a better way of doing it because you don't take it from the banks and give it to the taxpayers, which is what Paulson wants to do. Then you have to. Then he has to go hire a whole bunch of people from Wall Street to evaluate these things, hire a whole bunch of people from Wall Street to manage these things, hire a whole bunch of people on Wall Street to try and someday sell these things. If you do this mark-to-market within the institution itself, if you would suspend that rule and allow the fair market value accounting, again, there are rules for this. This isn't fantasy stuff. You can't suddenly say, oh, wait, that's worth a billion. This, this is hard-headed stuff. He says bank examiners do this every day and could do this. This would not be people self-declaring like some of the people who took these mortgages who self-declared so-called liar loans. We're not going to have liar assets, uh, but this would free up a whole bunch of money in the system, according to Mr. Isaac. Can I say that back to you to make sure I understand? <laughs> so the bankers, in other words, would get a chance to look at their portfolio, and instead of having to say, well, it's worthless today because no one will buy it, they could they could describe what they believe is a fair value for those assets. Given the income stream that, that they're providing, yes. Okay, there's an awful lot of distrust these days of bankers. Who's watching the bankers setting down the value here? The cops at the FDIC, the uh, uh, the bank examiners, is the way Mr. Isaacs explains it. This is not done uh, in a vacuum. And he said, and I said, boy, you know, there's going to be a lot of people and a lot of banks. He said, uh, does the FDIC have the capability of doing this? He said, yes. He said, we dealt with 3,000 banks, uh, savings and loans, during the uh, savings and loan crisis. 
How much would your plan cost? Uh, potentially nothing, uh, because the FDIC, which would be uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, uh, and their insurance would be on the hook here. Uh, and the insurance is self-funding. Uh, when they uh, when they get losses, uh, they raise the fees uh, on all the member banks, and uh, we get paid back. I mean, the government would have to upfront the money, uh, but ultimately uh, gets paid back uh, through the insurance. So in a worst-case scenario, if the FDIC comes in and makes bad bets, comes in and, and reads banks as solvent that are, in fact, really on the edge, the money for that payout, for covering that loss, would come from money raised from other banks? That's correct. Same as car insurance? Yep. And so, and, and Mr. Paulson's premise is, take $700 billion, borrow it, uh, buy up uh, assets of his choice at, under terms of his choice, unbelievable powers, he becomes the god of Wall Street, uh, then, uh, you know, this would somehow take care of the problem. There are some that question, because we're talking about freeing up commercial banks. He's looking more at the firms that just last week became commercial banks, like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and the investment houses on Wall Street, and he could even be buying derivatives under this bill, which I won't even begin to try and understand or explain. No one can understand some of them. What's the near future for your bill? Well, I'm working. Uh, uh, I've, I've got a dear colleague uh, out there to get co-sponsors. I'm getting a number of uh, Democrat co-sponsors. I worked with two Republicans to write it, uh, but thus far uh, we're not. Uh, there's a lot of Republican interest, but none have signed on yet. So I'm not sure what's going on on their side of the aisle, and I hope it isn't, uh, you know, an acceptance of the, the Senate uh, Paulson package with the tax breaks added, because there are some on the other side of the aisle who just think tax breaks solve every problem. Uh, I don't. Have you reached out to the Senate about this yet? Uh, I talked to a couple of senators about it. Uh, Maria Cantwell was very interested. I talked to Bernie Sanders about it. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're going down a, a different path. One of the things I think separates your bill from some of the previous conversation is that it really seems to be about neither Wall Street nor Main Street. Yeah, no, this I'm not pretending to solve the Main Street problem. Henry Paulson certainly isn't solving the Main Street problem. I'm saying if we borrow $700 billion and throw it at Wall Street, that isn't going to solve the Main Street problem. If we don't borrow $700 billion and we want to help people stay in their homes, establish something like a homeowner lending corporation like FDR had, if we want to have real stimulus, if we want to build infrastructure, we want to put people to work, we want to invest in America, we'll still have some borrowing capability left. If we buy seven, borrow $700 billion and throw it at houses, the big houses on Wall Street, who's going to lend us the money to fix Main Street? And that's the Planet Money podcast for Wednesday, October 1st. Come back tomorrow for another dose. We're always online at npr.org slash money. I'm Laura Conaway. Keep your eye on that Senate, will you?